Hello legends and welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub as always is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today I'm catching up with Cub member Jonathan Hopkirk, the Global Medical Director of Laser Clinics Australia, New Zealand and the UK. Laser Clinics Australia has over 180 clinics and take up roughly 65% of the market here in Oz. Jonathan has three bachelors, anatomy, medicine and surgery. He studied for eight years. Jonathan is an incredible guy. From this conversation, what I got was that his fundamental value is, is, is truly empathy. It's about finding out people's why. And he taught me a whole bunch of cool shit, all sorts of like medical things, scientific studies. We discussed leadership and divergent thinking. It was a truly special, special episode. I hope you enjoy the show. We're live. Welcome to the show, Jonathan Hopkirk. Thank you for having me. Now that yeah. I'm, I'm out of the basement, I got through, I got out of the concierge. Yeah, you figured out where, part, where you figured out my building part. Everyone gets confused. Everyone parks in the building next door. Well, he tried to get me and he was going to put me in the, do- in the loading dock. Yeah. And he said, you've got half an hour. And I was like, we might be a little I've, bit longer. I've got all the concierges paid off with bribes. Well, he knew about like, the yeah, podcast. Of course he so did. Working, but then- <laughs> I get away with anything in this building. But hey, tell me, I was talking to some members. And I think you were at a lunch with them or whatever, mm. and you were telling them something about Botox. Mm. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I've got to stop you. you. You said to me at the very start of the podcast, <laughs> I can't say Botox. And I was like, yep, don't worry. We're not going to say it. We're not going to say it. Literally, straight, I didn't get 10 seconds in. Straight into the B word. <laughs> sorry. I mean, you, anti- you can take the fine, but I, I don't want to Anti-wrinkle injection. No, I'm allowed anti- to say because I'm yeah, not a doctor. That's I'm the so furthest I, thing you could get from a doctor. I can't be seen to be endorsing it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, cool. anti-wrinkle injectable. So, yeah, the story story goes there was and this is based on a paper there was a um, a fairly good uh review out and they looked at the the various impacts that anti-wrinkle injectables could have on you outside of the direct impact of muscle relaxation and it was pretty fascinating they spoke about um, how people that might have a tendency to feel down if they were to remove the frown so you were to put anti-wrinkle injectables in their frown that uh, if they weren't able to frown as fully, they couldn't reinforce that that emotion of feeling down, feeling angry, feeling negative. And they found that then they wouldn't feel it as much and that, that emotion as much. And they also found that people would start responding to them differently. So because they weren't frowning as much at people, there's this thing called an emotional contagion. So you're sort of mirroring the emotions of the person in front of you. And so they because they didn't have this sort of depressed look or this angry look or this down look, people started referring to them as though they were happier. How cool is that? Yeah. And it's also so interesting because it is like what you do, what your body does, mm. does reinforce how mm. your brain feels. Mm. Whether that be if you're always walking around sad, yeah. your brain's going to think you're sad. Yeah. If, you're, if, if you're sitting on the couch all day, your brain's going to feel lazy. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's phenomenal. So there's this, there's this feedback loop. So you have something called efferent nerves that come from your face, from your skin. And they feed back to your brain to reinforce the emotion. So if you're feeling upset and, and you're frowning and you're, and you're feeling down, you will reinforce that emotion. And the same is true as well with smiling. So this is when, say, for instance, if someone comes into the clinic and they do have a history of low mood, um, then I will tend to not treat their crow's feet, which is around the, around the, around the eyes, as fully 
because I want them to still be perceived as someone who's really happy, who can do a full smile. And, and I'll voice that to them. So you're looking at the whole, the person as a whole, not just the face. So if someone is a happy person, you can see they're a patient of yours, they've come in, they're really smiley, they're really happy. You don't want to diminish their smile at all. You're so going to say that to bit. them. So you just do yeah. a little bit of the, so you try and reduce the wrinkles, but try not to reduce the expression too much. There was a, a study in the States, which is pretty fascinating, so that's a, a Duchenne smile is when you fully engage the cheeks. And they looked in the yearbooks and they did this sort of follow-up on everyone from the yearbooks and they found those people that had this sort of disingenuous smile that just smiled with their teeth and didn't fully engage their cheeks did statistically worse in their marriages than those that had the full Duchenne smile. No way. So I do not want to commit someone to a bad marriage by cutting off their by smiles. Screwing by screwing up their by, smile. By too much anti-wrinkles. Yeah, so. and it, it's it's – it's just crazy how your body mm. and what you do mm. affects it. Like I was watching this Tony Robbins thing once when I first discovered Tony Robbins and he was saying something similar. Like he was talking about depressed people or whatever it was. But he was saying get up, force yourself to smile. Mm. Do He was like take action, you know. Action has a direct like what you call it a feedback loop to your mm. brain mm. which then triggers the next you know, a more positive or at least a different outcome. Absolutely. And it's crazy. And so, I mean, you know all about – well, a lot because you studied for eight years. You've got three bachelors. Yeah, I was a sucker for punishment. Let's see I think I, I liked the bar and I knew that mm. if I was going to uni that I could go to the bar more often. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I celebrated the short wins really well. Like people at med school, you know, it was a bit of a joke in the class below us. They were like, I remember them coming up to me after school once, after school, after their exams once. I was like, how do you guys go? And they're like, well, we sort of have this – um, this sort of mantra amongst our class. I was like, oh, I'm really excited. And I was like, what's this? And they're like, well, we all say to ourselves, if Jonathan can pass, anyone can pass. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, if you actually enjoyed yourselves as much as I did and passed, then I'd be impressed. Go away. Yeah, yeah if you're not having fun, you're exactly. doing something wrong. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it's not like you're not educated. You've got three bachelors. You've got a bachelor in anatomy, medicine, and surgery. Look, it probably could have taken me half the time, but, you know, like I said, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the ride. That's crazy. That's amazing. And now you're the global medical director of Laser Clinics Australia, New Zealand, and UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a pretty, um, pretty freaky thought. It's crazy, you know. And, and how did you – actually, why don't you introduce a bit more about what Laser Clinics does and what yeah. your role is there because then I want to I want you to take us back to how you actually got there, how, yeah, why right. you became a doctor, where you're from. Yeah, how, sure. how old are you? 33. Oh, you're young. Well, crazy. You probably look like, you know, like – and this is with – You look 23 because well, probably all your – yeah. <laughs> Well, one of my patients is like, what? She's like, do you have anti-wrinkle injectables? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And I thought, here's a little test to see how well it's working. How good is this product? How old do you think I am? She's like, you look really good. You must be 38. And I was like, and this is with it. <laughs> I was like, if I stopped taking them, I'd look like I was 46. Now, nah, but because of your credentials and your position, it would like it would like typically it would require someone to be older to be to be in your position. And and that definitely would take like that would be a factor in someone's decision. But anyway, tell us about laser clinics. Tell us about a bit of the story of the company uh, and your role there. And then I want to hear about how you got there. Yeah. Yeah. So laser clinics is a phenomenal, phenomenal company. So it started in 2008, a really smart guy, Bob Ack. Um, is a friend of mine. Uh, We've become friends since having started with laser clinics, but he was a visionary. He saw the fact that uh, people, you know, at the time mainly wanted, women wanted to reduce hair and not have to do it repetitively. 
So the beauty of laser hair reduction is that, you know, you could do it every six weeks. Uh, you do tr 10 treatments and you reduce um, the hair to a level where you're, every time you're doing it, it's, you know, 10 to 20% reduction. So you get to a point you've got really good reduction and then you don't have to repeat it too much. So the maintenance is lower. So he found this sort of hole in the market where people wanted it, it was too expensive and there wasn't enough people doing that. So he then, you know, met that, that demand with supply and it just boomed. You know, over the last 12 years, it's gone from being two initial clinics to then it was like seven, then it was 20, then it was 30. When I joined in 2014, there was 70-something clinics and now there's 180, you know, in, in, in six years. It's just crazy. Wow. And, and when you say supply met demand, demand supply, or whatever you said, do you mean that he was able to provide, because you said it was quite expensive, so he was able to provide this laser, hair laser removal for a cheaper price? Yeah, so he, so it was traditionally dermatologists and doctors doing it. And so they found that you could actually legally train therapists um, and nurses to do these treatments. And that's how we dropped the price. Yeah, so got them trained. So these labor costs, you know, go to see a dermatologist, maybe 300 bucks an hour to have... Uh, laser hair removal was, you know, it's probably a bit steep for your average student or, you know, uh, person between 20s Bondi and 30s. Locals. Yeah, Bondi <laughs> local. So uh, he was smart in that he found, okay, cool, well, we can train these people um, at a fraction of the price and, and they can work at a fraction of the price because they're not dermatologists and then we can open clinics. And, and now, and so it started with laser hair. What do you do now? What did it Yes, there's a range. There's laser hair, skin treatments like microdermabrasions, needling, acne treatments. Um, and then you've got uh, things like cool sculpting, which is where you dissolve fat so you can body, you know, you can body, you can shape body contour. And does that work? Because I've heard about that. So you're telling me that you could just bang, give me some abs. Yeah, so, I mean, you still have to do a little bit of work behind the scenes. Yeah. But, um, you know, because you release it, you're unveiling the muscle underneath. But, yeah, it reduces about 27% of the fat that you're um, targeting. Wow. Yeah, and how does phenomenal. it what, what does it do? So, basically, it's a, it's an energy current that you send into – it targets the fat cells specifically and it cools it um, to a temperature that the fat cells can't handle it. And so the fat cells essentially just break down and then the body eliminates the fat cells. And so the body just shits them out? Oh, uh, it's probably more medical words, but yeah, okay. essentially. But that's pretty much what happens. Them. Yeah, for the purpose of this podcast. Yeah. I won't be saying this <laughs> <word>. <laughs> okay, and um, and, um, and uh, Botox you do? For the purpose of this podcast, I won't be saying the big Shit, word either. Yeah, damn. <laughs> for the, uh, what did you call it? The other word is for Botox. Anti-wrinkle injectables. Anti-wrinkle injectables, which, like, which you've almost convinced now? me, which you've almost, yeah, but I'm allowed to say it. Yeah, you're allowed yeah, to say it. Um, and I have which, to frown at it. Which you've almost convinced me, which you've pretty much convinced me that I'm going to try out on my forehead. I've, I've given you an understanding that you might benefit from it. Yes. Yeah, I sorry. I wasn't coercing you. I suck at talking to doctors. I wasn't coercing you. No, you just explained to me what it does. And I did a full medical background on you as well. And that's it. And also the collagen injections. Yeah. So there's, you know, we lose probably 1% to 2% of our collagen every year, uh, you know, sort of late teens upwards. And, you know, that has, that has impacts all over your body. Um, but one of those things is obviously how your skin appears um, and the elasticity in your skin. And, you know, whilst we're losing more elasticity and your skin's less taut, you know, gravity works against you and it starts pulling things down. So and that's why wrinkles yeah, happen. Yeah, so wrinkles happen because one, you're expressing, you're using the muscles, you're pulling on the skin. But two, you lose volume in your face. So when you say volume in the cosmetic world, you're talking, you know, fat pads, you're talking muscle changes, you're talking bony changes. So a female, for instance, will go from being more heart-shaped to then masculinizing because the, 
the, the bone and the cheekbone area will resorb, so it'll flatten out. So they go from being more hard to more. And why does that happen? Though? It's just so for females, it's more pronounced because of hormones. So um, they will have bone loss at a more accelerated race, a more accelerated rate from a younger age. Whereas males don't tend to lose the bone as early. Um, and then so when you're losing this bone, you lose bone. Yeah, so you think bone, bone, not bone, like yeah, fat. No, bone. Yeah, so bone as well. The bone resorbs. So if you were to say, if you were to take someone and you take photos of them through say 80 years you'll just see that their their cheekbones will become less pronounced so they become more square the mandible will shorten the chin will roll up as the mandible shortens and the maxilla this area around the, the top lip drops back so your nose appears to be longer so that's why your face, that's why your face it looks like it's becoming longer in the middle and shorter on the bottom and then your orbit opens up as well so your eyes look more sunken and you Is lose that men and women or mostly men and women and, and everyone ages differently and there was a study that I read recently that actually suggests that we age to a clockwise direction as well. So when you look at someone's face, it's usually sisters, it's never twins. So someone's face, generally you, you, when you're treating someone, you've got mm. two faces to treat, mm-hmm. uh, which is incredibly hard because, you know, one side of the face is different from the other. We're all after symmetry, but symmetry isn't actually always aesthetically pleasing. Oh, okay. But, uh, that was going to be my next question. Mm. I, got, I read somewhere that symmetry, so people that look symmetrical are more attractive people. It's a sign of good genetics. Yeah, so there's a golden fee ratio. I think I pronounced that right. Um, there's a golden fee ratio. So there's mathematics around parts of your face and and, and the ratios. So um, they some some really you know astute surgeons like it's a guy that I, I did a one on one with earlier this year, Dr. Arthur Swift. He's from Canada. He's absolute boss plastic surgeon. He uses calipers to actually measure out your face. And if you you can go on to sort of Women's Weeklies in the last twelve months, and they did they did. Uh, basically an assessment of all the celebs' faces using the golden fee ratio. And I think it was Amber Heard was regarded using the golden fee ratios as the closest to perfect. In really? Terms of face. Then they had like um, Emily Radzikowski had the most perfect lips and all these sorts of things. I don't like the word perfect in the aesthetics, but no. in terms of the golden fee ratio, they were matching them up to that. It's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a and it's golden fee. Golden fee, yeah. I think it's P-H-I-I. Okay. And, and so – so, I mean, Laser Clinics does all this really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and would you call yourself in the beauty industry? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're a hybrid. We're, we're now, we have a medical board. So um, we've got three leading dermatologists in the country, myself, so on this medical board. We've got a nurse council. We've got over 300 nurses and doctors, and then we've got about 3,000 therapists. And, you know, we, we're really trying to change the game in that uh, we're actually trying to uh, l- not leave the beauty space but move more to a medical space and okay. that we're offering more to, to help under that medical umbrella. And, you know, I think during a time of COVID it's, it's really been important for us to sort of show the government that as well because okay. you've got, you know, he- you've got nail salons that are able to open um, and, and then we're only able to open when the nail salons open but we're run by doctors and nurses who are more vigilant with COVID standards than anyone. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, why wouldn't you have the sort of semi-medical branches open before these others? And it's not anything against them, but it's getting it's hard when you're lumped under a beauty category yes. when you're actually run from more of a medical sort of And backfield. other than having doctors, how can you be perceived or, or, or how could you be more medical? Yeah, so it's, it's looking at well, – I mean, I can't say too much commercially because it's potentially our future, but it, it's moving into a space where – we start to offer more medicalized treatments. We mm-hmm. start to 
we start to look at how we can help the public because, you know, we have a huge database. We do about three and a half million procedures every year. Jeez. So that's a lot of people that you see. So then you start thinking, okay, um, well, if we're seeing, if we're doing three and a half million procedures every year, imagine like, you know, for instance, uh, if we were to look at it like everyone needed a vaccine, it's going to be really hard. Well, you know, hopefully that time will come sooner than later, but you're going to need people to administer those vaccines. So imagine if you could turn around and then you had, you know, 300 health professionals, so every person they see, they also do their vaccine. So you take some of the weight off the government, some of the weight off the GPs, some wow. of the weight off the doctors. So just looking at ways that you can benefit the community because you've got such access to them. You've got such a big reach, such yeah, a big, big organisation. And, and as the global medical director, what's your responsibility? So responsibility is basically to work with the medical board to try and – or to not try, but to make sure that everything we do is efficacious so it works. What we say it's going to do, it's going to do, and it's medically backed so there's good literature behind what we do and that it's low risk. So we, we don't want to be looking at rolling anything out if it's incredibly risky, um, mm-hmm. you know, because if you're doing that many treatments, even a 1% risk of severe outcomes is not good. It's not good. So we minimise the risk. Um, we basically work with, um, we work with regulators as well to ensure that, you know, you're doing everything above board and also giving them insight as to how it can be sort of commercially impactful if they make big rules without sort of too much consideration for the, the business side to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, regulators, and, and rightfully so, they have a real place. They want to make sure that it's as safe as possible. But sometimes safe doesn't also they, – what they think is safe isn't actually going to make too much of a difference. So it's giving them that insight, which is really cool. So I work with like the Ministry of Affairs, uh, New South Wales Medical Board, um, health ministers, these sorts of things. It, it, so it's kind of like a – R&D slash product innovation role mm. where you mm. are researching the latest technologies, mm. skills, you know, things like that and, and, and finding these new services and products you're able to offer, yeah. making sure they're safe, making sure the literature actually makes sense yeah. and that what you're saying is going to happen happens. Yeah. Um, and 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 that's kind of what you're responsible yeah. for. That's really cool role. That's that exciting. Fun. You get, and then you that's get, probably the coolest role a doctor could ever. Right? Well, that's it's it's awesome. And then yeah. I do media as well. So you do the media stuff. Um, you know, talking with journalists and what have you. And mm. then there's a bit of legal. Um, you get you get bits of everything. It. You just got all these teams under the same umbrella. And um, it's, that's what I love about it, is the diversity. No day is the same. You learn so much. Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah. And. In that space, mm-hmm. in the medical slash beauty, whatever you'd call that combination of a space. Just don't say the big word. Medical space. <laughs> but no, we can talk about it in sense of we can talk about the beauty space, not the yeah. space you're in, but in yeah. the beauty space. Um, there are – are there a lot of products that don't really do what they're supposed to, would you say? Yeah. Or so, you know, they kind of do it. Yeah, so I mean – I'm not in a position to sort of bag any products or call any out, but I think generically, yes, there are, you know, a number of products and fad treatments that have had, um, you know, the support or endorsement by certain people and certain socialites. And then people feel that because it worked for them and amongst all the other treatments that they were doing that they haven't disclosed, Mm -hmm. then they're going to get the same benefits. So it's like someone who's using a cream and they stand on TV and say, this cream is amazing. It's changed my life. My skin has never looked better but they don't disclose all the other routines and mm. all the other money that they pump into the anti-wrinkle injectables, the dermal fillers, the collagens, these, all these other things that they do in the background, they don't disclose that. Okay, so it may not be necessarily that the cream doesn't do 
what it's supposed to do. It just means that the cream didn't do, make you look like that. There's a lot of support. Yeah, yeah there's, a, <laughs> there's a, a lot, lot of the creams. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole support team behind that face, which isn't just the cream. Incredible. And and what about yourself? Where, where are you from? So, yeah, so I grew up in a small place in New Zealand called Rotorua and uh, it was, um, you know, pretty – pretty. I was I was more of a, a, a sports, you know, fanatic. Uh, never really looked at the medical space. And then I just, to be honest, like most kids, I wanted to make the All Blacks. Most, most Did you? kids growing up in New Zealand want to make the All Blacks. And I, you know, probably stupidly hung on to that dream for longer than what I should have. Uh, whilst other people were getting degrees, I was like, no, I can do it, I can do it. Uh, but, you know, there was some sort of merit to that because when I got to the first year of health science in Dunedin, Otago University is notorious for partying, um, I'd had quite a, quite a fun first year and then failed physics, so didn't get a physio um, interview and I wanted to do physio. Didn't get into physio and it wasn't like a very high percentage um, to get in. It was like 55 or 60% average, which wasn't a whole heap. And then I remember talking to my brother and he's like, why don't you try and become a doctor? And I was like, are you nuts? I just failed that. <laughs> I, like, I failed getting into physio. How on earth do you think I'd become a doctor? And his, his words were amazing. He's like, well, have you ever thought that you could be? Have you ever looked at it as though it's something that you would want to do? I was like, I would love to be a doctor. And he's like, well, then just ride with that. So I was like, okay. So, and I remember it was amazing. Like I just flicked a switch. Like I remember exactly where I was standing when I thought it. Um, and it was in St. David's Lecture Theatre. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I had three friends that were trying to get in. So I was like, okay, I can get in post-grad. And from there it was like a seven-year journey of like just really hard work. But I went and I applied all the hard effort that I'd put into rugby. And I was like, okay, I'll drop rugby and I'll put that same ethic into my study. So I just roll up to the library at 5 a.m., finish at 11 p.m. every night, just go hard and just did everything I could. And then my mum, I remember my mum was so angry because she introduced me to the dean of med school in Auckland. And she didn't tell me who it was before. And I was, I quite enjoyed Nip Tuck, the program. So, but she introduced me to the medical dean outside of the hospital and I didn't know who he was. And she was like, this is my son, and, you know, all proud. And I was like, thanks, mum. And I was like, hi. And, and he was like, yeah, hi. He's like, come see, you want to you wanna become a doctor? And I was like, yeah, that's, that's, that's the aim. And he's like, tell me, why do you want to become a doctor? I was like, have you ever seen that program, Nip Tuck? <laughs> <laughs> the disdain on his face. And the disdain was like, it was even worse in mum's face. Mum was looking at me like, you absolute idiot. So I had to come, I had to come across the Tasman to do med school. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he came here. <laughs> so yeah, then, then I got in here and I went through med school here and it was, um, you know, it was good. It was, it was a good journey. Met a lot of great people. Um, eight years was, you know, it was a long, a long slog and then, went through the hospital system and I think initially I wanted to be probably more of a GP. I was just thinking I wanted to work with people outside of the hospital and then, I don't know, like the hospital was good but it was just, I was just a bit disenfranchised after a while, after a sort of a year and a half. I was just like, you know, there's nothing in here that would make me want to stay for 40 years and, and, and I'm really keen on life outside of medicine For how long well. did you say? 40 years. So for 40 years, you know, if you were to look yeah. at the at the profession, like what, what, what of these, you know, do any of these specialties grab you enough to compete with everyone else in the rat race? And you're mm. dealing with the smartest people you've ever met yeah. and people that are, they don't want to go out and party. They don't want to go out and have the fun that you're going to have. So are you prepared to drop all that and try and match them or are you prepared to sit second best and just not get through and have to go and work in Broken Hill or work in, you know, um, right. Northern Territory and all these places until you're like 50 and then you finally get a job. So I was like, nah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue the cosmetic route. 
And you made the decision? So I just dabbled with it first. So I started a cosmetic business on the side, was just injecting. Then I trained another couple of doctors as well. And then someone, a mutual friend, suggested that they needed someone at the laser clinics in Wollongong. Met the family there, beautiful family. And I was like, oh, look, they're not paying as much as what I was paying, you know, getting paid from doing injectables myself. But I was like, well, if there's one way to get good, it's volume. So you just go in there, see as many people as you can, try and, you know, get as good as you can at injecting. And then it puts you in a much better position for your own business. And I disclosed to them, I was like, well, I'm going to continue to run my own business as well. Is that a conflict of interest? I was like, no, 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 it's fine. And then I sort of realized that at the time across the industry, there was like just, it was a little bit void of general medical principles. And, you know, my granddad was one of the first vascular surgeons in New Zealand. So I was always sort of brought up to have like this, this ethic around you and your ethic around your practice. And I was like, yeah, maybe there's room to improve this whole industry, you know, to be ambitious, but just starting in the clinics. And um, I think maybe, you know, that, that sort of passion came forward. And then when we sold, when the company sold in 2018 to KKR, um, it got offered the medical director role and then it just sort of built from there. And that's, that's sort of what I've taken on really. Incredible. What I love about that story is that you're obviously an incredibly committed person. You're able to accomplish things that you in your head say, that's what I want. You know, and you don't give up, whether it be for the footy or for the, the, the school, for the study. Mm. But then not just that, once you got there, you you ended up in ho- – hospitals aren't like Grey's Anatomy, are they? No. Okay. That's so funny because it's exactly what I say to people. It's not what you see on the TV. It is not lab codes. <laughs> I wasn't expecting it to be. I just thought it's I It's not lab codes, doctors, <laughs> nurses, everyone having a good time. It's, yeah. You know, no. there is parts of that, but for the most part it's quite stressful. And so – but then you, you got there – you had just studied all that time. You'd got the, you're like, mm, don't really like this. And you took a position that paid less with the intent to get better at the direction you wanted to go in, which was cosmetics. Mm. You wanted the volume, even mm. though you're getting paid less. It was a sacrifice, but mm. you did it for, you knew where you were going at that point. Mm. And I just think that's really cool. And not many people do that. A lot of people will go on the higher paid path or the safer path. You you went on the path that's going to make you stronger, make you better. Mm. Uh, and line you up more for the direction that you wanted to go in. And, and now you've got, I guess it would be it's the, the dream, you're in a dream position. No? Yeah, I love it. That's good. Yeah, I think you have to um, you have to back yourself and I think you have to look at things circumspectively. You have to look at it and go, okay, so, you know, I've got 40 years. So I've got 40 years to make money. You know, mm. I've got 40 years to try and make as much money as I can. And if it's all about making money, there's far easier ways than going through eight years of study and then and then working up your way through the ranks as a doctor but for me it was less about um you know there's definitely money there because I had a fairly huge student loan but it was more like well you know what what do I feel like I'm here to do and ever since I was young you know I grew up with a sister with down syndrome so it's you know really close to my heart ever since I was young I thought well I want to help people I want to try and do something that helps people and even though you know my brother at the time when I left medicine or mainstream medicine and I think my granddad was probably a little bit gutted um for me, it was still a way to help people. If I could make the industry safer, if I could make the company, you know, a little bit safer, if I could make the industry at large safer, then I'm doing something to help people. And that's what you are doing. Yeah. You're, you're making these mm-hmm. these um, services and products that, that three and a half million people are doing mm. every year. You're making it safer for them. Yeah, that's the goal, yeah. And you're finding new cool things for them to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. It's a good run. And obviously you've got a great mindset. Like that seems to be something about you that, that uh, separates you from, from from many others, but, but uh, possibly in your industry specifically as well with other doctors. It could be a big point of difference for you, your mindset, your strong mindset. 
And normally, I mean, sometimes people are born like that. Mm. But I reckon more often than not you'd have some great leaders mm. in your – or at least mentors or examples yeah. or idols in your in your life. Have you had that, do you? Absolutely. So, you know, I, you know it's probably cliche but my parents were great leaders. My mum – She's a leader of Confederation of Midwives in Holland at the moment. You know, she's she's worked in Papua New Guinea. She's working now in Holland. She's worked in um, Torres Strait Islands. So lifting uh, lifting the quality of care for for midwives and and that midwives can provide to third world country um, you know populations. So she's a phenomenal leader. And my dad, you know, he's a leader. He's he started business. He was CEO of a company. He's a veterinarian by by trade, and then started his own business. And he's always been a really, you know, humble, beautiful leader. Um, but I think growing up through school, I had one. You know, I've had a lot of great leaders, and and growing up through school, I had one guy, uh, Mark Wilson, who particularly stood out to me. He was the headmaster at the boarding school, and when I went to boarding school, I was a particularly it's a troubled child, but I was just pissed off. Like my parents broke up about a couple of years before. It was a particularly messy time for the family. You went from having been one of four kids, big backyard, everything amazing to you. Your brothers and sisters getting sent to boarding schools all over the country. Mum moving away. Dad, you know, then I eventually went to boarding school. So I went to boarding school just pissed off at the world. Mm. So I'd, I got there, I was getting into fights, I was lashing out in anger. And, you know, anger is sort of there in a place of where you're hurting. So that was just the way I was expressing myself. And um, I remember this guy, Mark Wilson, who was phenomenal. He took me aside after I had this punch-up in the schoolyard after breakfast. Like, if you're fighting after breakfast, there's something going on. Oh, you're on. serious. That means you woke off. Yeah. You woke up pissed <laughs> off. No one pissed you off. You haven't yeah. had t- enough you're, time for someone to piss you off. I'm just, you know, just yeah. wiping the cereal from my mouth. And then I'm in this punch-up. So I remember Mark Wilson, Mr. Wilson, takes me aside and he's like, in his office. And the cool thing about this guy as a leader is that, you know, he's got – a hundred kids in this dormitory that have all got, you know, their pre-pubertal, pubertal, like they're going through puberty. Some of them aren't. They've got testosterone. There's just a soup of testosterone and other things going on as well as all the issues that come with that. But he was never too um, never too busy or never too big to take you into his office and just have like a 10, 15, 20-minute chat with you. And he took me aside this time and I was like, oh, no, this isn't good. And he was like, look, he's like – I'm going to be straight with you. If you keep doing this, you're not going to last in this school. You're not going to be able to stay in the school. But um, he wanted to inquire as to why I was doing it because he knew that, you know, I at heart I wasn't you know, a mean little bugger, but he was basically just – he was like he wanted to try and help you see and treat the cause rather than just trying to punish you for the symptom. And so the symptom for me was anger and the cause was what I'd just been through. And it was amazing. I was like, wow, that's such, that's such a beautiful way to lead, you know, leading with compassion, vulnerability, humility, um, and just sitting with you rather than just slapping you on the back and saying, get over it, move on. So I think as a male to a male, that was particularly special to have that young. Mm-hmm. And I think ever since I've always been like, yeah, there's, you know, there's good room for leaders to be vulnerable with people that they're trying to lead. You know, if you always put on this big, strong facade, then it's not relatable and you can actually be – a less good leader because people are like, oh, no, that's unattainable and bugger him, he doesn't understand my pain. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I like to think of – I like to think that leadership – leadership's one – leadership's not for everyone, first of all. Not everyone wants to be a leader. Yeah, exactly. And it, I'm, I don't know the study. You're the doctor. But <laughs> there is a study that, sh- that, that explains it. Most people don't actually want to have the responsibility to make the – to call the tough decision. Mm. So if, you, if you're in a group of six people mm. – and you get to a fork in the road, five out of them 
at least maybe four out of them, aren't going to want to say, let's go right yeah. or let's go left. There's very few people that want to do that. If you are one of those one to two people that do that are happy taking that responsibility because that's what leadership is. Yeah. You're taking responsibility. Then there's, there's, a, there's this beautiful uh, dance between strength which you need to be as a leader. You need to be strong. People need to know that they can count on you, that mm. when when there's a war that you're going to be able to fight it and, and they're on the, going to be on the winning team. But also what I really like, you called it compassion, but you also said to find out the, the why. Mm. Everyone's got a why. Yeah, absolutely. And as a leader, it's your job to know their why. It's your job. Why are you uh, tired when you get to work? Yeah. Why are you in this position? Why are you upset? What? Why are you working? Yeah. Why? Why? What do you want to achieve? What's it for? Yeah. And only when you know someone's why can you really become a great leader because as a leader you're supposed to direct them to their why. You're supposed to be the key to help them get to their why. Absolutely. Or at least accomplish the reason why, yeah. right? And and that's great leadership. And did that send you – did him asking you why are you angry, how did that send you in the right direction? Did it? Or, yeah, for me I think I was just like, well, now I feel seen. I feel like someone actually sees my pain. I actually feel like someone is hearing me and someone understands me. And so me lashing out with anger, now that I look at it retrospectively with more knowledge about life, I was lashing out in anger because it was hurting. And that was the only way I could show it. That's the only way I could express myself. And so, you know, I wasn't going to sit down and write a diary about it. For me, um, as a male at 10, 11, 12 years of time, I lashed out. But it was pretty freaky. Like a year after that, I remember my brother, he's another good leader, and he said to me, and he's a profound leader actually, like he's an undercover leader. He's always given me great, both my brothers have always given me great knowledge. Um, but this, this Daniel, my brother in particular at the time said, um, you should put your hand up for everything. If you want to become a rounded person, put your hand up for every single thing, even if a thing seems a bit strange. So I was like in the first 15, I was in the choir, I was doing debating, I was doing all this you know, very avant-garde stuff. But I remember when I was um, 11, after this angry patch, there was a chapel and they're like, okay, so everyone put your hands up as a male. It's the first time that a male is going to be sent to the other side of the world to go to a school. Put your hand up if you want to go. And I was like, well, I'm not going to get picked, so I put my hand up. And then we went through interview processes and then my mum's like, hey, you know you're going to Scotland next year. Hey, you got that scholarship. I was like, you're kidding. So I was 11 years of age packing my bags to go to Scotland and I mean, my dad took me over and dropped me at the school gates and I've never cried so hard. I was like, oh, my God. I'm on the other side of the and world. And you were how old? I was like just turned 12. That's young. So I'd just gone from like parents breaking up, boarding school, one year later, Scotland. And I remember dad dropped me off and I was like – and it was just like – I don't know, I think maybe from a young age I've managed to manufacture that 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 switch flip in your head. And I was like, okay. And I think this, this is where there's a lot of credit to being exposed to difficult situations and being able to self-regulate and being able to pick yourself up and tell yourself it's going to be okay. So I remember sitting in between the arch of this um, boarding house hoping kids weren't seeing me cry, but I was just like, you know, crying into your, into your jersey and I was just crying away and I was like, all right, you can cry for as many months as you want. You probably won't run out of tears. You can keep crying, keep crying, keep crying, or you can just just step up and get something out of this and make something from this and go home with some great stories. What's it going to be? And the minute you make that decision and you make your mind behind it, you just you roll on and you walk forward. Yeah, I, I think – I mean, I went on a massive rant the other day. I was on Mark Boris's podcast, The Mentor, and I went on a massive rant about um, adversity mm. and how pain and adversity, 
they're blessings. It's a good thing. Absolutely. And the world right now, what I hate most is the world right now is trying to take all this adversity and pain away from people. Yeah. It, people need it. Otherwise, we're going to have a whole world full of flops. Yeah. Everyone's going to be, oh, he said something he didn't like. I'm so upset. I, I, can't, work. I can't go to work today. You know, like, like, what? What are you – like, bad things are going to happen. Yeah. Like, that's life. Yeah. Like, and, and they're not even bad things. They're good things because they force you to do something. They force you to get strong. They force you to, to, to focus on what you are grateful for or for the good things that did happen that day because there's always some things. Mm. And I think adversity and, and pain, they're – they're the opportunity for you to get stronger and better, Absolutely. for you to improve and to take action. Because yeah. if you're not getting, if you don't have adversity, if you don't push yourself, for example, you even just putting up your hand to go to Scotland, right? You pushed yourself. You said, "Oh fuck it, I'm going to give it a shot," mm. and then you did it. There's not. I don't think there's many twelve. I I can tell you now. I wouldn't have gone at twelve at twelve years of age. I wouldn't have crossed. I I, mm. I, I wouldn't have uh, left home across the world. I wouldn't have. It was, right. nuts. it was nuts. But it is. But you did it and that made you who you are. And, and the point is that people need to love – Team Cub has training. We, we train – one of the members owns gyms and uh, shout out to Loggy. But we have like team training sessions every Wednesday and Thursday. So the whole team goes and trains together in the gym. And we have a massive sessions, mm. huge sessions. Like everyone's almost dying at the end of them. And throughout the session, I was screaming up fucking such a psycho. Screaming, Team Cub, you're animals. You love pain. We live in the pain. We want, we love this. If we're good at this, we can do it. I'm screaming my ass off. And we finished the session. And Laura actually said to me, she goes, I, I, You're a mental, you're a psycho. But honestly, like, I actually pushed myself harder because you were screaming. She's, she's, you, you. And, and it, it's not just mental pain. It's like pain is good, even physically. Mm. At the gym, if you do a heavy weight, your muscle feels pain exactly. and it causes your muscle to change yeah. and your muscle gets bigger and stronger. Yeah. The same way your brain muscle can get bigger and stronger when your brain has pain. And you, like pain is a great, beautiful thing. People should love living in it. It, yeah. should, just, it should be obsessive because it makes you better. Yeah, so I think it's, it's you know, now the World Health Organization has um, – basically given a statistic that the biggest contributor to um, disability worldwide is depression. And, you know, you, you read a, a, a number of books that basically talk about it. Well, it's not the people that are under the poverty line necessarily. It's, you know, yes, some, but it's not the people that are disheveled. It's not the people that don't have, um, you know, beautiful opportunities. It's actually middle, middle age to sort of 30-year-of-age men upwards living in, like, quite affluent suburbs because they haven't had the opportunity to self-soothe. They haven't had the opportunity to have to pick themselves up. And every micro opportunity of grief you get, so if you lose your job, if you lose a girlfriend, if you lose a cat, every opportunity that you have to sort of feel this bit of grief, this feel this bit of loss, feel this pain, feel the suffering, but turn around and, and use your own skills and your tools to get yourself back up on your feet and keep walking forward, that builds you up for the bigger you know, the bigger traumas in life. So when those happen, you're not completely knocked out. You're like, all right, this is bigger. It's magnified, but I've been in these parts before. I've been in these waters before and I've got the skills to get through and I'm going to get through. And as this. a man, you can That's be a good leader. Absolutely. But I think it's important as well, you know, like it's important as well to allow yourself to feel not okay. You know, obviously we went through the, the Are You Okay month recently and it's like, well, sometimes I think big, strong, burly men are like afraid to show that vulnerability and afraid to say, you know what, actually right now I am suffering, but 
it's all good. It's okay to suffer. And you don't have to suffer in silence because when you, what we do typically because society doesn't, you know, we've got great movements like are you okay and what have you, but society doesn't glorify negative painful emotions. We want to be happy. We want to be positive. We want to have ecstasy in, in our lives and we want to be ecstatic. But there should and be give more. away participation yeah. medals. There should be more endorsement to actually, you know, it's it's okay to feel shit sometimes. It's okay to be to be suffering on the inside. That's okay, and you're gonna get through it. The sun will come up tomorrow. There's gonna be someone to support you. My granddad's words were some of the, the best. He said, uh, "If things ever get so low, stick around. It can only get better." So true. So true. And and I love what you said. Like everyone celebrates the good things. You look on the social media and everything's so beautiful and sexy and happy and oh my God, look where I'm traveling this month. Where should I go next month? Like all these type of stuff. But it's kind of like, okay, yeah, well and good, but what about the pain and the sacrifice that you need to go through to earn enough to go on these beautiful holidays? Or, you know, there's always pain before before great – I mean – the best shit comes after the biggest pain. For example, giving birth. Yeah. Like the most beautiful thing you can do in the world Absolutely. is create another human. Mm-hmm. And that shit, I've never tried it myself, but that shit doesn't look easy. It yeah. looks painful, yeah, yeah. you know. And, and that just shows you it's a correlation between extreme pain and then extreme – it's literally in our DNA. That's, and it should be celebrated, adversity. Mm-hmm. It, should be, it should be encouraged and it should be encouraged to be shown. And on the topic you said about sometimes men being afraid to show mm-hmm. um, their pain – I, I'm kind of with that, but like I know, if I, I can only relate to myself. But I know that anger will be my, and I reckon it's a lot of men. It's your like that's your that's your switch. Mm. So if you feel anxious, depressed, sad, tired, like anything that's going to slow you, mm. like I know that my body or brain, whatever you'd want to call it, will flick the anger switch, and you know when you're you're in that, you can just get through it anyway. You're gonna force yourself power through. Mm. I'm not saying it's correct, the right thing to do. It's probably the wrong thing to do is what I'm actually trying to get at. But but rather than maybe being afraid, is it more that you've learned that, well, if I'm pissed off, I'm just going to go to the depths of hell to get done what I need to get done anyway because I'm angry because I, I want to do it. That's funny. There's, there's, so you get a dopamine release, release when you – uh, in a hard position and you take steps forward. So they did some studies with uh, rats and they would have them in um, a tube and they would make them fight. Um, ethical approval, yes, I'm sure, but they had this the study, so they had them. Each at the end of the tube was a blind tube. They could only walk forward and they would have a winning rat more often than not. And then what they found is that, well, this the, the difference between this winning rat and the other rats is that the minute they were confronted with the situation where they were going to have to fight this other rat, there was no other way to go, they walked forward and they were studying what happens, what's the, what's the psychology, what's the physiology behind that. So what they started doing is they realised, okay, so if it's the rat that's moving forward has the upper hand from the outset because the way that its brain is firing, can we stimulate the other rats to start having that same momentum in their brain? So they started pushing the other rat forward and then they could actually change the dynamics. So that other rat that was losing a couple of times, now because it got this initial push behind it and actually was forced to move forward, you start sending these different um, – you start sending different hormones into your bloodstream and you start sending dopamine to reinforce this behavior of, you know what, even though this is going to suck, I'm stepping up and I'm getting it done. So they say, you know, when when you're feeling down, when you're feeling like – I just don't have the energy. You actually become more motivated when you do just pick yourself up and get into it. Mm. There's a dopamine release in your brain to say, actually, 
it's kind of sick, but I actually quite enjoy suffering because when you can when you can consolidate that that wiring in your brain that actually I'm I'm moving forward while I'm so proud of myself, I can do this, then when you next get into that spot when you're feeling low, where you're feeling like you can't do it, you think back to that time that you could. And that's where you've got this 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 memory to go off. And it's also that's just commitment. Like like just to even something simple like the gym or going for a run, being healthy, or going to work, whatever it may be, you're not going to feel crash hot every day. No No one does. Mm. But like even the greatest champion of the world of any sport does not feel great every day. But the difference is that they turn up. You know, if I feel shit, I'm still going to work. Exactly. You know, like it's happening. Like I'm going. I don't care what happens. Even if I don't do anything, I want to go. Like be there. And and it's just that commitment. It's that progress. Your brain likes you – Moving forwards. Mm-hmm. And and so with leadership, mm-hmm. how do I tie that back to leadership? <laughs> <laughs> well, leaders are going to be in the thick of it more often than not. And, yeah. you know, the, what was the saying? Um, Jay Shetty was saying, I listened to a podcast recently and he was saying, well, you know, arrogant leaders demand respect and, and humble leaders um, inspire respect. So when chips are down, when things are tough, when when people are – um, going, God, what are we going to do when there's someone that steps up and goes, look, I hear you're all hurting, I'm hurting too, but this is the direction we're going to go. Mm. And you make decisions and you show them that you're there to support them and you're going to do everything that you can to, to help them get and, through as well. And inspire confidence. Yeah. And that's been the year for that. That's been a huge year for that this year. Yeah, this year is the year of the leader. Absolutely. I should be christened to that. I'm going to start I'm going to start spreading that. The year of the leaders. Yeah, it is. The that's year it. of the leader. Yeah. It's, your, it's been the leader's time to shine. Absolutely. And – <clears throat> and I actually said this to one of the team once. I said, I can't make you – I can't tell everybody that you're the leader. Mm. Leadership's not given. Leadership's earned. Mm. And even if you are in a position of power, and you, maybe you've been hired for that role or you've been whatever, you, in your place in that position, you still need to earn mm. your right to be the leader. Otherwise, no one is going to follow you. Yeah. Yeah, and if you don't have a good track record of leadership and you've led people off a cliff – the past 10 years in a row, well, no, no one's going to want to be led by you anyway. They're going to choose a different leader. So you, yeah. need a, you need to show that you can lead and you've, you've got a history of it. It's a curious time for leadership now as well because you've got leaders from all different generations and you've got Gen X, millennials, Gen Ys, Gen Zs, and then you've got you know more traditional baby boomers that are at the top of a lot of these big businesses and some of these guys have grown up in a whole different realm and now they've got millennials going... I want you to be completely transparent with me and tell me all of these things. And you've got this baby boomer who's going, well, it's just sort of water runs downhill. This is how it should work. That's interesting so too. I've never thought actually, about that. Actually trying to think um, across different horizontal branches of generations is a whole other way. So now we have to be more transparent in our communications. You know, companies like Amazon, um, some of these companies that are doing really well with the CEOs being very vocal around what they support publicly, that gets them more trust from the public. So... Um, you know, millennials, Gen Ys, Gen Zs, they want to see this. They want to see those people that are engaged in a different way and it's not just the traditional leadership. Well, it's what are the beliefs, what are the beliefs and values of the company that I want to support, that I want to mm. buy from, work exactly. with. what are the values? Yeah, and really, you know, what the, the company is going to have the values of the leader, because mm. especially if they're the founder and CEO. Absolutely. Because the company was just built around, their, it's it's, 
it was in their head and now yeah. it's in real life. It's, yeah. it's going to represent them. Exactly. And so and, yeah, that, 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 that's a good argument. Or you could go the opposite direction and do what the royal family does, which is not say shit. Just absolutely nothing. They give no opinion because if, you, if you're if you not heard and you have no opinion, you can't be hated. And if you're not hated, we're going to remain in power. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Sort of they've, they've got some traditions to sort of stand on though. You yeah. know, I wasn't born into royalty, so probably in a different position. But yeah, no, it's – yeah, leadership's a fascinating one. I think ultimately you either lead from the back or you lead from the front. Um, some people feel that if they're just – you know, they don't need to say much but they lead by example, that can be enough for some people. But then there's people that lead from the back and they make sure they're in amongst it and they're in amongst the crowd that you're leading with. Yeah, my, my dad used to sh- like – Draw a tri- like draw an org chart on a whiteboard and mm-hmm. draw the triangle and whatnot, and you, he'd have the CEO at the top and blah blah blah. But then he said that's wrong. He used to draw it upside down, and he'd have the CEO on the bottom, and yeah. he said that the, the bottom people are the top because they're the people that are with your clients all the time. They're the people that are they're the face of the business. It's they're okay. actually the yeah. leaders that you need to. F- you need to be behind them, supporting them, yeah. so that they can, so that they can lead the business forwards. Because you need to do that through your clients. Absolutely, and I think that's really cool. And especially now, uh, this year, like you said, the year of the leader, which we just crowned it, um, you've it's been a, it's been a difficult year. Mm. You've had to remain. Uh, you have you have to have a certain amount of agility mm. as a leader, mm-hmm. the ability to mm-hmm. pivot, mm-hmm. Um, uh, and just to regulate not mm. just yourself but also your team. Mm. And I guess how has that been for you? Yeah, it was probably one of the most challenging, but the challenge was a gift, one of the most challenging years because uh, the pandemic didn't happen to just be a financial pandemic. It was a pandemic that was caused by a medical thing, which is a virus. So any doctor in any company all of a sudden has to become an expert on this virus that no one's an expert on. So I'm getting operations calls coming at me. I'm getting franchise partners asking questions, every person under any umbrella under the company going, oh, so what do we do now? And I'm like, whoa, my responsibility just went up tenfold. But it was a really beautiful challenge. I just became the director of COVID. (laughs) Well, this is essentially it. We're making policies and, you know, I'm fortunate to have a – a great team there of, um, you know, dermatologists and a nurse council and these sorts of guys that I was bouncing ideas off. But I was like, wow, okay, so there's going to be a lot of responsibility, a lot of pressure because you make a decision and then all of a sudden you shut down 30 clinics and that's massive. That's that's people's lives that have been impacted. So it wasn't particularly easy because at the start there wasn't a whole lot of clarity from the government around what was the best path to take. There also wasn't, you know, um, a plentiful amount of testing and and where you go to see someone if you suspect that you've got COVID. So it was a real mess. But what was really great as a challenge was it's like, well, okay, how can you have divergent thinking? And divergent thinking uh, by definition is a, it's a, a, a thought process or a method um, by which you generate creative ideas looking and, and sort of surveying um, multiple uh, possible possibilities and solutions. So I sat there with the medical board and we were going, okay, well, if we close 180 clinics, what are we going to do? And I was thinking, okay, well, what's what's the issue here that we have? We have a global pandemic. What's that going to do to people that's going to that's cause harm? Um, what do we have? Well, we've got 300 nurses and doctors. And what are those nurses and doctors doing? Well, they're dormant now because they've just been closed off some, from their main job. So what can we do? So we sort of had this draft plan around and, and it, fortunately um, COVID didn't take off here as much as it did in other countries or didn't cause as much burden. 
But we were at the ready with this idea that we could pivot, we could use our clinics, and then we could use our health professionals to potentially help the public um, if it got that bad. You know, so for me, it was just this understanding of, okay, well, if we've got these resources, we've got this network, we've got this understanding from the public, public know who we are, then that could be potentially a way that people who are suspected to have COVID don't go to the GP centres where they're mixed with vulnerable people who are already sick. They don't go to ED for the same reasons. They actually come to these places that are specific for them. It was pretty cool. I had some discussions with other doctors from other companies and that was something that we're looking into. Um, so to try and uh, get your your own mind into a space where, you know, it's it's not like it hasn't happened to you as well and it's not like you haven't been stood down to a very small percentage of your income. It's not like the stress and strain of all the stuff is, is not happening to you but it's your ability to, like we're saying, get up, keep routine about you, make sure you control what you can control and that, that which you can't, you don't stress about but you make sure you look after your internal environment so when you have to, you've got the capacity to actually make good decisions and make decisions which are outside of the box. So, you know, you can turn around and someone goes, all right, we're going to need this from you. You go, actually, I'm one step ahead because I've been able to manufacture this nice internal environment that irrespective of what's going on outside, I'm still going to function well. I love What I love about that is that um, we, so we, we did something quite similar at Cub. <laughs> Not in that we had doctor stuff, but in that we had ownership, like you did, over the whatever situation was going to happen. Like you said, you had thought of an idea or a plan. You have a plan. You have plans in place mm. for no matter what happens. Well, okay, this is our plan. This is what we're going to do. And often at work, or especially with Cub, this is uh, that's very much how I, how I'll always think. I'll think, okay, if that happens, then this is going to happen. Then these are going to be the options. And you know, I think so much into it that mm. I go eight times down the track and yeah. I know if that doesn't happen and this happens. And and what's beautiful about doing that is that you hold ownership over yourself, your team, your company, because no matter what the government says or what happens with COVID, or you've got some sort of plan Absolutely. that can help you get through. And just knowing that there's that plan there, there's that backup plan, gives you automatically a, a big relief from mm. a lot of anxiety. And it may be – the plan may not be, hey, let's go make heaps of cash, right? The plan may have to be, hey, let's get through this period, mm. but we can get through like this. Absolutely. And I think having that ownership, having that plan is 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 essential. And a lot – like for me, I had never thought about having backup plans and things before COVID mm. for, for, for Cup. Now I have. But that's now a lesson, an adversity that I mm. that we went through and that I learned from that now we carry on into the future. So no matter what crisis happens, there's going to be a few bigger than the uh, – you say that. But anyway, for a while you'd hope there'll be a few bigger than this current one. That We're going to be easily able to overcome that because of this. And like you said, the government didn't give much clarity mm. right, around what was happening or much honesty. Mm. I don't think any government really did. But that's bad leadership because it's like it's caused everyone to stop. Mm. Whereas if they had said, look, we don't really know what's going to happen. We can't tell you what's going to happen. But we believe that this is going to be the situation. If this happens, this is what we'll do. If this happens, we're going to look at something like this and, and give some sort of framework. Some, mm. it, it, some, it, we would like to know where the pieces on the board are so that we can plan our, yeah, our, our <laughs> movement. And I think that that's a that's a – I think, by the way, I just want to stop and say I think our government did a fantastic job through COVID. Yeah, likewise. Bar Victoria, I hate that. No, but I think the rest of the government did a real good job, and um, and uh, and only, I want to add only two because I think that putting 
almost 7 million people in jail for almost an entire year is going to do more damage to society than having than, uh, than um, maintaining a low level of COVID transmission like Sydney did with a free public. So so, is, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, that, it's the secondary issues that – and that was another thing we were looking at. In, yeah, depression, in anxiety, this is drug it. abuse, alcoholism, divorce, suicide. Yeah. Did I already say that? But, and they haven't told us what the suicide rates are, yeah. probably because they're ridiculously high, yeah. more than COVID probably. Yeah. It's crazy. We um, So in that time, just because I, I found for myself, okay, what do I do for my internal environment to keep me firing? How do I keep my brain going? One, join Cub. Thank you for having mm. me. Yeah, do you remember how you joined? You messaged me on, <laughs> I Instagram. Messaged on Instagram. So <laughs> I was at the, be- at the so clubhouse in Berry. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, bro. <probably> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I didn't get a date. I got, <laughs> I got a new member. <laughs> Let's collaborate. <laughs> yeah, so I DM'd you and then bang, we're, we're talking. But, um, yeah, I, I remember at the time I was like, I reached out to my friend because I said, you know, there's, there's, there's an opportunity here to use resources to help people if it gets that way. And, and I know now I learned that there was enough people on the front line because I sort of put my hand up to go back to the hospital. But it, it, I soon learned that they were really well prepared there. But I thought where they're not going to be prepared is the emotional well-being factor. So I had these discussions with my friend who connected with me with his company in, in Norway. And um, they've got some of the top um, augmented reality technology in the world. So I invested in this company and we started another company in Australia where we're using basically holograms and augmented reality to try and connect people better who are disconnected. So um, it's called Pictory Tale as the company, but we're looking at joining up with um, apps like Beyond Blue, Headspace, Black Dog Institute, and basically taking this technology to them and saying, okay, so if there was a way to better connect people to say psychologists, doctors, or better connect people to people using this technology, what would it be? And then building this platform for them to be in addition to their app. So pretty fascinating stuff. So that was what I was toying with during COVID and that was what was really keeping me going. And that really is you, that just shows your, did you call it divergent thinking? You were saying, okay, what do we need? What's going to be the cause of this effect? Mm. And then what is going to be a solution or need that that cause is going to require? How can can you connect the dots? How you... How can you take something which is available, which maybe isn't being used in that space now? Mm. Say medicine isn't using holograms. How can we use holograms in medicine? So if you're disconnected from a loved one in the hospital and you can't get in there because of COVID rules, and you can't see that loved one be, you know, have their last breath, well, imagine if you could be connected in a new reality. You know, so trying to take the world one step further in a way where there's when when you're in a place of absolute hardship. Yeah, and really, that's called being a visionary. You're you have a vision of the future. It's a way to improve it. Yeah, it's probably just who you are naturally. It's probably what have a lot, a lot of entrepreneurs. I just find yeah. life fascinating. I just think it's fascinating to go, okay, this is a thought that I have. How close can I get it to making it reality? Mm. And then you just bust ass and then, you know, it either fails and you grow from it and you learn some things or it goes through and something changes. Yeah. And the only difference between someone actually doing it and and not is the person believing that they actually can. Mm, absolutely. And that's just what separates the, the greats from, from the ordinary. 100%. And – I want to get some mind and body optimization mm. um, tips from you because I know there was something you had a couple of. Mm. What are some things that people can do at the moment to have peak performance or wh- whatever it may be for? I don't know. Are they for anxiety releases? For do you have any yeah so tips, I, doctoral I, tips yeah. and tricks? So there's you know a big movement in medicine now, which I'm particularly fond of, which is integrative medicine or functional medicine. Traditionally, doctors help people survive, but they don't often do everything they can to help people thrive. And it's not poking sticks at doctors; it's just that it's not what you're taught traditionally at med school. But there's quite a cool movement into actually looking at how you can take a person 
and help them optimize all their faculties. So how can you help them thrive? So some of the simple things that I practice that I've, you know, read up a lot on is, you know, cold water immersion every day. Is, is you know, the, the Wim Hof stuff. That is so, so, so profoundly impactful is in your life. Really? It is massive. You know how many members do that? It's, it's unbelievable. unbelievable. So I start the day with it every, every, every day. start the day with sort of Wim Hof cold water immersion, whether it's the ocean or whether it's just cold shower. Um, so there's, there's sort of literature to say that you kill off um, – uh, weak mitochondria, mitochondria are your energy hubs in your body. So you kill off the weak, 20% of your weak mitochondria, and where those weak ones are killed off, um, new ones grow. So What's you, a mitochondria? So mitochondria is like your energy cell in okay. your body. So you, you, you can build more energy, have more energy. Um, and what I love about it is that if you can wake up and the first thing you do in your day is uncomfortable, but it's modifiable, it's not going to put you at risk of hypothermia because you can modify it. Well, and you can sit in cold water. You've just gone from a nice eight-hour sleep. You've been in this really warm bed and now all of a sudden you're in this brutal awakening because you're in this freezing cold shower or the ocean and you're sitting there and you find this peace and calm in your mind. You're like, hey, I'm actually all good with stress. And how long do, do you sit there for though? About three minutes. Oh, it's fair time. Yeah, so you sit there and then you just basically self-regulate. You, you get in your mind and you go, actually, it's okay. I'm fine. I'm fine in cold water. I'm fine in stress. I'm fine in this. And then you, you get out of that and you're like, this is going to be a good day. And so you're saying that that allows you to have more energy throughout the day, but it's also mentally, it, it sets you up mentally to have a good day. Mentally, so your, your your breath work as well is so important. So that's where I'd recommend you look at the Wim Hof stuff. I do Wim Hof. Yeah, I love so Wim Hof. the breath work is so important um, because your breath, so I think another thing I think is just being mindful of your breath all day. So everything changes in your life and things can come and go, but your breath will always be there until you're gone. So if you can work out how to use your breath in your favor, it's, it's phenomenal. You know? So you, can, you have a phrenic nerve and a vagus nerve which come from your lungs and the phrenic nerve goes up to your brain. So when you're hyperventilating, you can tell your body, even sitting there, you can tell your body that you're running away from something and you're scared and you flick on fight or flight. The same way is true of the opposite. So if you sit there and you, you pause between breaths, so you, take, you breathe out for four to six seconds and then you pause for six seconds and you breathe in for six seconds, you just slow down your breath you can actually then send um, signals up to your brain to say, hey, I'm calm, I'm relaxed, all is good. So, so by slowing down. Yes, you're slowing everything relax. down and then your body's in this rest, digest state, uh, mm. parasympathetic, so you relax. What's, what's another little optimization hack? Another little got? optimization. Uh, look, I would do your research first, but I would say um, actually reducing how much you eat. You know, reducing how much you eat. So I would typically do – there's so many different words for it, whether it be fasting intermittently or time-restricted eating, but – um, there's pretty good research now around the fact that we have genetics which are based off what we had 200 years ago when we weren't in a situation where you had Uber jumped off at your, first, at your front door and you didn't have to do anything, you didn't have to burn calories, you didn't even have to make it. So we're in the situation we've got genet genetics which favour um, holding on to fat and now we've got a society which favours giving you energy-dense foods. So we actually don't have to have as much energy, anywhere near as much energy as we think we do. So when you fast, when you have a period of, say, if you just took out one meal like each breakfast. day. I've yeah. done the intermittent fasting thing with, with no breakfast. Yeah, you just take out one meal, then you're eating a bit less. You know, you drop how much wasted you have because we do waste quite a lot of food as well. And then if you can cut out, you know, try and cut out refined foods, processed foods, sugars. So during the week I'll try and eat vegetarian just to minimize how much meat I'm eating. Then on the, on the weekend I'll eat meat. 
do sort of fasting, intermittent fasting throughout the week. So we'd start the week, we'll have a 36-hour fast at the start of the week. So won't eat from Sunday night, 10 p.m. till Tuesday morning, 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. And it is phenomenal. You know, like when you first start, you're like, that is ridiculous. This isn't reproducible, must be causing harm. But there's some really good evidence behind the fact that you actually go into the state of your body just cleaning itself up. You go into this anti-inflammatory state and you start cleaning your body up. You start um, regulating insulin better. You start producing, um, you know, these glucose molecules for your brain. So your brain is functioning at a higher level. It's phenomenal. It's, it's, it's essentially like this this natural drug that you can give yourself. But yeah, also you, you burn visceral fat as well, which is a dangerous fat which sits around your gut. And and so, I, I mean, I had done some reading on that because I was a fan of it. And it, your stomach, your digestion actually takes a huge percentage of your body's energy. Huge. And uh, what this study I read said was that because you've got that excess energy, your body uses it to clean dead cells, yeah. to to rejuvenate the yeah. body. And, and when we were evolving in, in cavemen, we weren't eating three meals a day. No. We were eating when we had food and we'd have to run to it and catch it or at least dig it up. So I'm a big fan of that. And just to wrap up because Laura's doing her little finger twirl to me, um, do you have a – I guess maybe I'd love to ask you two things. One is a book recommendation Mm -hmm. because I'd imagine you'd have a fascinating one. But the second is what's a life lesson you've learned um, as by – being a doctor, what's a really key lesson, a fundamental lesson you've learned that that you think everyone should remember? Yeah, I think I'll start with the second. I think the biggest life lesson through learning, I think, from my sister and, and from being a doctor um, in any capacity is you get more of an unveiling of the fact that every single person, you know, it doesn't matter how good their life is, everyone's got some shit under the surface. So when you look at people, have that, that, that assumption of positive intentions. No one is born trying to harm other people. No one's born pissed off. No one's born angry. No one's born trying to rob you. Something's happened in their life which has conditioned them. So if you can look at people with just pure compassion and there's empathy. There's a why. Yeah, there's a why. So just look at them as a person and with compassion and empathy and go, you know what? If I was in their position, if I had the same upbringing, if I had the same hardships, I was probably, I'd probably be doing the same thing. So just look at people with a beautiful compassion and your life becomes immeasurably better. Increase your empathy. A hundred percent and your life just gets better. I agree. Um, Book recommendation. I think the most powerful one I've read recently was um, Mindset. Uh, It's really, really fascinating. It's by a psychologist and she just talks about the power of your mindset and it's growth mindset versus fixed mindset from the ground up. So even when you're talking to your kids, not praising them for their talents, but praising them for the ethic, praising them for the hard work. So then they're actually What's more the book called? mindset. Yep. So they're then more focused on the fact that, hey, even if I fail, that doesn't matter because I'm working hard and I know if I work harder, I will get the success. But if you praise someone for their talents, then the fear is if they ever fail, then they're like, I'm no longer talented. And I also can't be seen to try hard because if I fail, then I'm no longer the talented one. How funny is that? That book's about what we're talking about. Adversity should be celebrated. Yeah. It's like praising someone for the, for the fact that they they were working hard, that mm. they were putting themselves through un, to, through uncomfortable situations Absolutely. in order to improve. Yeah, it's a phenomenal book. Yeah. Awesome. Really That's a great way to wrap up. Really recommend. Um, man, thank you so much for coming on. That thank you for having really me. Really conversation. I think we only said the B word um, about five times. Yeah, and so it was only me, and it was 20, only in the first like ten. So Twenty five thousand dollars worth of yeah. money for <laughs> That's fine. I'll pay him. All right. And thank you guys uh, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you very soon.
Peace. Cheers.